This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. And I'm Paul Weimer. And we're going to be talking about Footfall. Footfall. By By Lynn Niven and Jerry Purnell. You bet. What was the year this book came out? 85. Yeah, 85. It was was up for the Hugos in 86. Yeah. I found a a nice page um, on a site called Worlds Without End um, that lists all of the books that were up for awards in 1986. And it's a really interesting list. You got Ender's Game, Blood Music. Hmm. Footfall, The Postman, um, Free Live Free by Gene Wolfe, Count Zero by William Gibson, The Handmaid's Tale, um, This Is the Way the World Ends by James Moreau, which is a very good book. Never heard of it. Anyway, interesting. A lot of those. Yeah, uh, Robots and Empire by Asimov. Ew. Yeah, and then, um, let's see, Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. Terrible book. I hate that book. Did (laughs) you? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's funny. A bunch of humans lying on the beach, uh, having evolved into uh, sea lions. <laughs> yeah. And then the uh, World Fantasy Award list is interesting. Song of Cali by Dan Simmons. So that was one of his first ones. And then hmm. the, the Damnation Game by Clive Barker. The Dream Years by Lisa Goldstein. Um, Illy Whacker, which has a really cool cover, by Peter Carey, a book I've never heard of. The Vampire Lestat by Anne Rice and Winter oh, no. by no. Paul Hazel. Anyway, interesting bunch of stuff out at that time. It's so 80s, man. That yeah. list is so oh, 80s. Oh, this is cool. The Hercules Text by Jack McDevitt was up for the Philip K. Dick Award. Yeah, that was one of his very early ones, if not yeah. his first one, as I recall. Right. And then A Hidden Place by Robert Charles Wilson is also up for that. It doesn't say, I don't see um, who won it. But anyway, interesting. Uh, don't we know who won? That was not Ender's Game? No, the, I was talking about the World Fantasy Award. Oh. Yeah, Ender's Game did win the Hugo and the Nebula, I think. Yeah. And that one's a lot better remembered and a lot better selling still, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it was better selling still at the time. No, because it, uh, football was a New York Times bestseller right? at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it's interesting I, that um, you know Tom is... Clancy has a blurb on the front. So, oh yeah. Um, in fact, oh shoot, I forget. I don't have the cover with me, but the uh, I'm pretty sure it's on that. You know, I have a hardcover from back then, and yeah, uh, that blurb is on the cover of that. Yeah, so I have they it. were they were aiming for a mainstream audience, I would think. Totally. Mm-hmm. Nobody does it better than Niven and Pornell. I loved it, Tom Clancy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What is it? <laughs> this is the <laughs> footfall. referent for that pronoun. Footfall. He loved it. Yeah. Um, maybe. I, I'm mm-hmm. thinking maybe alien invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was thinking, you know, there aren't that many alien invasion books that, are, novels especially, that are actually like this. You know, when, Tam, you had that uh you tweeted the end of the acknowledgments, right? And it says right. um, Niven didn't want to do it because it had been done before. They're referring to, uh, I assume, the War of the Worlds, right? It's it's sort of been done so 
it was done so much that it can't be done again. Don't you think? Right. Um, there's a, there's a story I think I told you told to you about this about the genesis of this of this book. They were starting the uh, research for this book, and when when they came to the part regarding the dropping of the foot into the ocean, mm-hmm. the guy just said, "Forget writing this for the moment. Write giant giant asteroid impact," and that became Lucifer's hammer. All right. Okay. So they actually took a while off from writing this to write that book and then went back to this one. Lucifer's Hammer was also a bestseller, as I recall. They just yeah. turned these things out like mad in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, it is, so, it is sort of a Tom Clancy book now that I think about it. It's you know lots of governments trying to solve problems with uh, promoting people who uh, you know, are low-ranking but competent <laughs> sort of book, right? That's that's what Tom Clancy was all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking backwards, I mean, at the time I wasn't reading Clancy when I read this in the late '80s, but looking backward, yeah, I could see why Tom Clancy was all over this. Yeah, and all over the other ones that they wrote together. But also that market, you know, the market. Uh, this is a market-driven book, right? The editor says, "You got to write this. Here's the idea. I'll pitch it to you," and and they pitched them, and then they started writing Lucifer's Hammer or. They start writing this, and then they switch to Lucifer's Hammer, and then back to this. It's it's a um, it's a high concept uh, market, you know, for Tom Clancy style books. I would think because it it's got that feel, but it it also is the you know the Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell um, ideas uh, around a big plot sort of book. You know, it's it's a it's like a way more mainstream version of Ringworld or something like that. It is a whole lot more characterization. Yeah, or or, or even better, Moten God's Eye is like a very uh, much more mainstream version of that. Because the I don't think the aliens get short shrift at all. It's pretty. Um, it's they get pretty, long shrift. Yeah, they <laughs> they do, but I think the humans get. Uh, get a little bit too much screen time. There's a, there's too many characters to keep track of for me. I, I just sort yeah. of gave up. That's kind of where I was at too, you know, and I, I pressed through it pretty hard on audio. So, you know, I got to, you know, say that out front, but the, there was, I, d- I never had any problem following the story, but no, story, no most problem. of the time it really didn't matter who the characters, mm-hmm. what the characters' names were. You know, it was just, you know, there's a family running away from some aliens or something like that, but it didn't matter what their names were, it, you know, it, so I didn't have trouble following the story. But, um, so there were a lot of characters, but I, I don't feel like they were all fully developed in, in any way, um, because, you know, when I'd leave the audiobook and come back to it and I'm like, okay, I don't remember who these people are, it really didn't matter. Yeah, but uh, the thing is, is that development's supposed to be happening, because, you know, we spend a lot of time in people's heads who, you know, she's worried about whether her uniform is going to bring her career down because she's not pressed her uniform. It's like that, that introductory stuff, you know, this character is worried about something and, uh, you know, should I sleep with him? Or yeah. (laughs) Whether women's liberation was all that great for her (laughs) personally, you know, not really. um, It doesn't, it feels like it's it's going to be a, a character based book, but there's just too many, and and 
because you're always switching away to go to someone else or someplace else. You know, the, I, I think one of the most interesting things on the re-list, and I was re-listening to it, um, is thinking about that, uh, the, the Saturn flyby, you know, I think that that is just a real scene. I think that that's just that that Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell were there, and they're just writing. They just wrote mm. down what happened. Yeah, and, and because it, and then they did it sort of from a point of view of a of a journalist character who I guess we see later, but we don't really care about because uh, it sort of feels disconnected. It's it's like a series of you know it's a big disaster movie. This book, right? It's it's those movies where you have 40,000 characters on the screen and and you you follow a couple of them here and then you switch over to there and then the president's screaming about some problem and then he gives a big speech and blah 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 except the president's not as much of a hero in this book as as it would be in a, if it was a movie yeah yeah Go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. I, when I when I when I first read this book, I didn't quite catch the politics of that. When I reread this a couple of years ago, I thought, "Oh my god, they really really put the screws to the president, make him look weak and basically overrule him and override him at the end." Yeah, the military industrial complex always knows better than, <laughs> than the president does. Um <laughs> in these uh, I guess in, in movies we got to we got to root root for the guy in charge. But yeah, he—I mean, he, he's not incompetent. It's just—I uh, I think he's well portrayed. Actually, it's—it's it's sort of more realistic. Um, but because you know they're not uh, strategists, they're not uh, experts on any particular thing. They're experts on getting to be president. So they're not going to be the uh, in real life. They're not the ideal person for any particular job. Right, they, when uh, World War II starts, you have to get the old prime minister out and get a new one in, <laughs> so they can get the job done. Yeah, yeah. yeah one of the things that I really did like about this book was the, you know, the whole book is sort of a case for getting science fiction writers, you know, into the government. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you know, if you have if something like this were to happen. A handful of science fiction writers would be a good idea to have yeah, as they, advisors. They come, they come out as the top characters. In this yeah, book. and they really yeah. do, and and they 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 go to them over and over and over, and I'm sure they really enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, I was even inspired to do an SF Signal mind meld based on this idea. I, I put out the question: Well, if this really did happen, like in football, what science fiction writers today would be a good idea for the government to talk to? Mm. Oh, that's that's awesome! I got to look that up. Oh, who who was the uh, consensus? There was there was a lot of different people they threw out there. I'd have to pull up, pull up the uh, webpage. I should have had that up in advance. I just I just thought of it talking about that. Hmm. The one that leaps to mind is David Brin. Yeah, I think he was one of the one one of the people that got a lot of play. He certainly spends a lot of time thinking about it. Um, um, I, I've heard of like the government going to different authors, like just yeah. to like spitball different terrorist scenarios. And yes, oh uh, yeah, uh, I hope what's that his they name? do. Ba- is it Bear? I think it's Greg, Greg Bear. Greg Bear that they've mm-hmm. that they've talked to in the past about Bear in uh, Bryn Benford and uh, somebody starting with a V. Werner. Uh, Benji, yeah. Benji, yeah. Um, but. I'm not sure. I, I, I would want some uh, 
Sheckley in there and some Dick. They'll be a little more skeptical about what's actually going on and maybe have a sense of humor about it. Um, You know, the one thing that I really wanted to mention, be sure to mention, Jesse, you tell yourself, be sure to mention this, is there is is one book mentioned in this that isn't in the book, that isn't The War of the Worlds, and it's a really good book that I've read, that is an alien invasion story, sort of. Um, It's called the... uh, It's by William Tenn. It's called... uh, The Men in the Walls, isn't it? Men in the Walls, that's right. And um, it's a very interesting story told from uh, after the invasion has happened many generations ago. Uh, the aliens have taken over the Earth, and and the aliens are giants. They're thousands of feet tall, and the human beings live in the walls of the houses that the giants have built on the planet Earth. So basically, we've been turned into mice. Hmm. And... Uh, it's it's kind of a comedy in the plot. Um, it, there's a lot of sort of humorous situations, but it's not played as a comedy. Um, and how how are we supposed to uh, you know kick these stupid aliens off the planet? It's not going to be easy because they can just crush us. And if you they even come into the room, you have to be hiding in the walls, or you're you're you just shit your pants because you know you're a mouse basically. Um, fun, fun book. Cool. Yeah, that was. The, that mm-hmm. They were definitely paralleling the plot line of them running around the bowels of the uh, mm-hmm. the herdmaster's ship. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of um, questions I have that maybe you guys can help me answer uh, about what's going on with regards to some technical stuff. So uh, when the the how did we pronounce her name? That's why I was going to ask you guys, because you guys have heard the audio, and I haven't. How do they pronounce it? I always do it the pathip, but I don't know if that's right. I think that's enough. That's pretty much how they did it. And then there was, um, you know, there's a word in the book. It's F-I with an apostrophe. And that's, there's some kind of a weird pronunciation of that, that, you know, it's almost like an intake of breath. Right. So yeah, something like that, and and they would just plop that in all the time. And I think the narrator did a pretty good job of trying to make it all yeah sound sound like it. Right, it, right. I mean, he gives them act sort of a under the tongue in my life. Yeah, that, <laughs> I, I found that kind of irritating. Yeah, like, I, I, I did as well. It's how it's written, you know. He's he's just trying to do what's on the page. <laughs> yeah, no, but it, like dramatically, I don't think it worked. Well, I, I, I think th- Stefan Rudnicki would do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> I think he, I think he would try, um, because it's it's what's there. You got to work with what's there. You can't just you know give them all British accents and Shakespearean soliloquies. You know, <laughs> they're they're giant elephants with uh, their tongue is or their nose is their hands. Right? They gotta they gotta do it. But so. When these aliens invade the Earth, they demand that human beings uh, roll over on their belly so that they can be shown to be in submission, right? Um, And when they submit, uh, their whole tribe or whole group has to... It's a symbol for their whole group submitting, right? Right. Okay. Remember the scene where there's uh, some bikers in the bar and... One of them says, there's a baby elephant, and it, it must be trained because it rolled over. 
Um, if that guy had walked over and put his foot on top of that elephant, wouldn't all of those guys in that spaceship up above have to have had surrendered? No, just the ones that are under his uh, command. It's, it's because they were asking for the leaders of humans to roll over. And so the leader of a town rolls over. Therefore, the town is now under the control, not just any random person. Okay. All right. So you have to, you have to know who the leader is, I guess. Yeah. Dominance herd hierarchies. Yeah. That's what they were going for. Right. But there, there's like, they're all one herd, right? Up in space. In the end. Yeah. Under the herd master. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I remember at the very end, um, you know, when the surrendering was being talked about and everything, there was some of those in Africa, and there was a question, you know, when the president was talking about it, there was a question about whether the ones in Africa would surrender if the ones in space did or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he didn't expect, you know, just like, you know, human beings, he didn't expect one of them to speak for all of them, even in the ship. Yeah, so uh, when if we think about the way human beings interact in war, you know, uh, a group can surrender, individuals can surrender. Uh, you know, you put your hands up, you wave the white flag, right? Um, and then you, I guess, ceremonially give up your sword or your gun or whatever it is. Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, just because you got the field marshal doesn't mean you haven't got Hitler to surrender just yet, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes a little more sense, but, um, I guess what I kept thinking is why didn't these aliens have any science fiction writers to help them, uh, empathize with what it's like to, uh, do first contact with aliens. You know, it's like, I know that a white flag is not going to work if I, if I run up to a bunch of, uh, people who've never seen me before and don't know my culture. How come these these uh, aliens didn't have this benefit? They do, they don't have any fiction to help them strategize on what it would be like to contact, to do for contact, and they never well, mentioned that. The, the aliens are okay are uh, backward in some ways, and then the novel makes yeah. that clear because they described all this technology from this other race, and they are, they have underdeveloped sociology in some ways, and I think they're also. Also, it's a criticism of herd mentalities, which Niven also does with yeah. the puppeteers. Yeah. I was, I was kind of glad, glad to see it wasn't sort of a, a yellow peril story, because <laughs> I've been noticing that pattern over and over again. Yellow yeah, and, and then there's Africa, though. Yeah, um, well, yes, but it's, it, it wasn't as um, – it, it's not explicitly uh, – I mean, everybody gets short shrift except for the – Russians and Americans, right? What happened to Canada? Poor Canada. Nothing. We don't know anything that happened there. Um, and since this is supposed to be a global spanning story, all we get is, I guess, Zulus and uh, and and that sort of represents all, all the other countries, all the other peoples. I don't know. Uh, what uh, what I think was a really good scene to have, though, in this book was the the nuking of Kansas by Russia, but it was a, it was a friendly act. <laughs> yeah. But the fun tension that, oh, Russia might actually nuke the entire United States right. instead. And then, and then the, the thip being shocked that they would do this to knock them off of Kansas. It, that was well done. I th- I found that odd that the move, the book was set in the nineties rather yeah. than contemporary. And he still had this whole cold war Russians in space. Well, they sort of had, um, they sort yeah, they had this, 
this technology fetish sort of thing going on with I mean they had the F15s with the uh satellite interceptors, right? Yeah. Um I don't think that was happening in 84. I think that was a dream on the drawing board in 84. Uh when this book is being written. So the uh you know Star Wars the SD, uh, SDI strategic defense initiative, right? That was uh, and still is not feasible uh at least as a regular technology they they've sort of been going in different areas but when you get niven and niven and pornell and a bunch of these guys from the 80s in the room and they say hey what can what what could we do they give you all sorts of things that are going to be very expensive um and uh yet i i think for me the most interesting scene is is the one of Saturn, right? That's where the money should be spent. Is send those probes to Saturn, because I don't think life under the uh, the the whatever would be that bad. They seem to <laughs> they seem to want to hang out in Africa and mm-hmm. use those planes to grow their food or whatever. Oh, and I guess bomb the Earth until it conforms to their idea of. Oh, okay, so it could be pretty bad, but still, I'm not sure this threat is that that plausible. Mm. And and the other thing that's interesting is that unlike the world the War of the Worlds, which is um, you know famously an allegory, this is that's that's this kind of fiction and the kind that Larry Niven seems to do, and I guess Jerry Purnell with him, it's there's no allegory at all, or if there is, it's it's within certain scenes or within certain situations rather than an overall one. It's what a lot of people think of when they think of science fiction. You know, they think of um, spaceships and uh, rockets and and Star uh, Trek and laser guns, right? Well, yeah. that's kind of what these guys are about: is spaceships, rockets, and laser guns. Um, it's not about uh, you know a hidden message of uh, Star Trek style, you know. Yeah, Star Trek style, you know, you've got all these alien races, but the alien races have all, like all these, they're really standing in for humanity, or some kind of a comment on humanity. Mm. Um, I don't know if I got that feeling here, you know, I, I kind of felt like they were Star trek kind of aliens, you know, because they, they would come up with the quirks and things for them to have, and, um, you know, the... It's it's hard to not you know I remember a character at one point saying well I'm not I don't mean to anthropomorphize here but blah 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 and mm-hmm. I was like you know well geez aliens really are in the whole book they're anthropomorphized because you know how else would we understand them and all that and then you know the language barrier and all that kind of stuff that's usually kind of glossed over in a book so that you can get on with it you know mm-hmm. that that kind of happened here too mm-hmm. you know and to, to be English, fair if way, you Excuse me? They were talking English pretty fast, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. pretty fast, for sure. Well, they'd been hanging around in the solar system for oh, right. 20, yeah. 20 years before they decided to come down. So they, right. they had plenty they're of time to learn. watching our TV. <laughs> Basically, yeah. And from Saturn, it's not like you can't get the signal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah the, only, the, the only allegory I can think of Niven and Pornell writing is the burning sitting, the burning tower. That's the only allegories I can think, and that's fantasy. So that's the only mm. allegories I can think of that they've mm. ever written together. And that's clearly allegories for race riots, resource depletion, and yeah. other things. Yeah, it's it, it's 
they they do have sort of hobby horses that they want to ride, but they they tend to be um, sort of very explicit about it. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> like those people they suck and don't know anything, and then the <laughs> next character moves on. I agree. <laughs> they move on to the next scene. Um, it's not very. Uh, it's not like here's a interesting idea. Have you ever considered this? And then sort of lay out what it would what would it be like to be colonized? Huh? Have you ever thought of that? And then oh yeah, this is what it's like to be colonized. Yeah, uh, that's but, a really good description of what they do, isn't it? You yeah, know, like oath of fealty. We've talked about that here before, and it was really a thought experiment on you know what this would be like. You know, mm-hmm. with the you know giant buildings and all that stuff, self-contained cities inside buildings. Yeah, or uh, Dream Park, right? I mean, yeah. there, there's things, there's plots happening. Uh, there, there, they pick an idea and they say, "What would it be like?" And then, yeah, yeah, and there's no underlying symbolism, or you know, no. in, in this book, I don't think that the aliens stand for anything. You know, they're not making a comment about humanity with their aliens. At least, if they were, I didn't see it. <laughs> Neither did I. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you know Tom Clancy isn't trying to uh, give us um, deeper insight into our own culture. That's not what he's. That's not the kind. Of, and that's notice he doesn't sell uh, sell it that way either. Right? Mm-hmm. There's one thing to uh, to you know write it and then have it be successful, even though it it's got some hidden message in it, uh, which happens. Like I think War of the Worlds, a lot of people don't think of it as a as a uh as all being about an allegory they just think oh cool alien invasion mm-hmm. right yeah it's not so i wonder what um larry niven was i guess they were just fishing for ideas on something to write together you know when this robert gleason um said hey do an alien invasion novel or whatever if he said he didn't really feel like doing an alien invasion novel i wonder what his other thoughts were maybe they all got written I don't know. <laughs> well, um, I don't, I'm not. I'm not sure that's the best. Uh, it's it's not the greatest book. I got to tell you, it's mm-hmm. I. It's the only one that I think I haven't read, other than the one you mentioned, Paul. Um, the fantasy. I don't think I've read that. What's it called? The Tower and what? The the Burning City and the Burning Tower. The Burning City and the Burning Tower. I got not the, familiar with that one. The set in Niven's Magic Go Away. Series. Oh, I like the, that. Yeah, yeah. It's set in that world, basically. Magic set in that. Up. Yeah, it's basically Los Angeles. It's basically Los Angeles in that world, and Southern California. Oh. interesting. Oh, so it's it's much farther along, I guess. It's towards the end of that sequence. Magic's clearly starting to fall apart, okay. and yeah, things that, the cracks are starting to show. The original. Well, yeah, I think the cracks were showing the as the magic goes away. I think is that the first novella or something. Yeah, that is. I mean, it's set not in the past. It's set sort of in a mythical past, right? It's right. set thousands of years ago, at least, um, because there's the the history doesn't match up with what we know about prehistory. Um, so that that might be interesting. I'd like to. Is it any good? It's not bad. I have. Uh, I, I think I need to reread it. Mm. I mean, I read it years ago. I need to reread it more critically and see if it still holds up. Mm-hmm. I was entertained at the time, although the the allegory is a little a little more present in, the, in that one than in their other works. Right. I mean, there there are uh, 
things you can read into their their stuff. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It's just um, I that's not what I go to Larry Niven for, anyways. I I don't say give me uh, give me something to think about uh, my own society. It's more like, well, if physics works like this, then what if this situation happened? And he said, "Oh, that's interesting. Nobody thought of that before. Very smart, Mister Niven." Um, but I, I was trying to think: is there is there a alien invasion novel out there that is, uh, a, like what we think of when we think of movie? You know, uh, the day the Earth stood still is uh, kind of like that. It's an alien, not invasion, but first contact. Alien spaceship comes down to Earth, and then. Uh, is it going to destroy us? Should we get, bring out the army? It's a it's a alien invasion that didn't happen story, right? Mm-hmm. Or if or if it is an alien invasion story, they only send the one ship and they say, you know, do what we say. <laughs> what what do you think? Is there a uh, another novel out there? Yeah. I'm well, there's thinking, the Turtle Dove yeah. series. Oh, that's okay. right. Uh, yeah, we were talking about that uh, before, right? Yeah, the, Luke Burridge is reading the, one of those right now. Yeah. He got really into. T- we were talking about that. I, I was talking about that about that series with him, mm-hmm. and uh, he was saying, "Yeah, it's not that great." But and he started getting into it while he was talking about it. He said, "Oh, that does sound good." <laughs> They're very readable. I mean, I don't consider them high art, but I mean, I just kept blowing, plowing through them, like mm-hmm. World War Two with aliens and tanks versus tanks. Hey, this is cool. And yeah. just keep going, going, going. I mean, it, it's kind of like popcorn. You yeah. Keep, you keep eating it. I mean, it's not going to change your life. It's not high allegory, but they're entertaining enough. Right. And the, it clearly, he, clearly he read football and was thinking about some of those issues. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Alien Years is one. Um, thanks, Tam. Just sent us a list through there, and I'm flying through it, but... I haven't read the the whole book Alien Years, but I read a novella that it um, that was in one of the year's best collections from that. And that oh, was, Out of Dark that that's yeah. a recent book, right? The the one I'm talking about is the Alien Years by Robert Silverberg. I'm gonna scroll down until I find it. Yeah. And oh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's a definite alien invasion novel. Well, there, there are ones, you know, like uh, there's another with Passengers by... Oh, yeah, uh, Silverberg. Silverberg. Um, but that's not really, you know, I'm thinking like aliens come to take over the Earth in spaceships, not like, uh, you know, psychically. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? that, that is what that uh, the Alien horror. Years one is, yeah. Okay, it's... Um, mm-hmm. okay. Way of the Pilgrim, Charles, uh, not Charles, um, Gordon Dixon, Way of the Pilgrim. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, a, yeah. I mean, I mean, they've already taken over the Earth, but its aliens have conquered the Earth, and the humans are trying to free themselves. Sort of novel. Yeah, that that seems more more common, right? It's 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 like everybody said, I can't write a story like I can't write a story of alien invasion, and don't you think that that's what really happened? Because all the ones we're mentioning here, as far as I am aware, are, are you know, alien invasion has happened. But I haven't read Out of, Out of Dark. But isn't that on another planet? Not Earth? Isn't that? I could be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think Out of the Dark is in that series that maybe you're thinking of. 
Uh, this well, is a, this is Alien weird. Invasion, popular Alien Invasion books. Footfall, War of the Worlds, Out of the Dark. Huh. David Weber. And Out of the Dark, yeah, by David Weber. But it's not part of that one series where, you know, they're somewhere else. Oh, um, okay. Oh. Let's see, I forgot the name of that series. Oh, uh, Off Armageddon Reef or something like that. That one happens after <laughs> some alien problems that they had and um, humans go and they colonize another planet. And when they colonize this planet, they basically shut off all their technology and it becomes illegal to have any because they don't want to alert anybody that they're there. Hmm. So then society moves on and now, you know, again, you know, science becomes magic kind of a thing. And the people who have it are, you know, basically religious figures. Hmm. The tripods, that that is, I guess, basically just, just the same thing. But yeah, like Day of the Triffids, that's mm. not exactly an alien invasion story, right? Yeah, it's they're not sentient. They're, I mean, it's just yeah, but they're, they're plants. From Earth. The the thing is, is they're from Earth. It's I've seen couple versions of that. I mean, I've seen there they they got mutated from Earth, and others that they've come they came down. So no, it's I mean the original, as far as I'm aware, is what I'm remembering from my brain of having read it is. That there's a light in the sky, lights in the sky that are maybe something, and then all these sentient animals that are sorry plants that they've got kept in in special farms uh, escape. So it's because people are not able to uh, control their their environment as well. They lose control of some dangerous. It's like basically. It's it's a it's like atomic uh, energy, right? If you don't man the atom plant, uh, you're going to lose control of your atoms. <laughs> sort of allegory, right? Yeah. Mm. Um, invasion of the body snatchers, like, uh, yeah, uh, it's an alien invasion story. But I'm like thinking, spaceship comes, they destroy the you know, <laughs> battle with the Earth. I think basically it's just this book and. And maybe the how couple. About, how about the Forge of God? Did you ever read that by Greg no. Bear? No. What's that one about? Um, oh, it's an alien invasion. I'm trying to remember if they show up in a spaceship. You know, uh, they do, and they yeah. Don't, don't, yeah, people escape at the. Some people right, escape exactly. at the end as the Earth goes boom. Yeah, yeah that's and right. Then the Anvil of Stars is the sequel. Right, which is a totally around. different kind of book. It's kind of kind of neat, but. The, the the Forge of God is an excellent book. The the first little while is kind of slow, but the last half of that book is, I like man, it. I remember it clearly, and it's been years and years since I read it. It really blew me away. I like Greg Bear, but um, it's not so high up on series. What about um, uh, I guess the other one that I I thought was somebody mentioned was the was it you, Paul? You mentioned the Heinlein um, puppet masters. Puppet masters, right? So yeah, that's they have they have spaceships, right? I think they do. Yeah, they land with spaceships. It's just yeah. they're small, right? They're not. Um, they're they're uh, they're small, and they use yeah psychic domination. Yeah, rather, rather than more explicit blow it's, up. The yeah, planet. It's not technology as much no laser as, guns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about Childhood's End? Did we mention that? Yeah, but that yeah, it's it, it they That's yeah, that's not an invasion. It's sort of a benign invasion, right? <laughs> well, it is it is an invasion. I mean, yeah. um they, they, they show up and they they say, "Hey, we're your buddies." 
and we're going to keep you guys from destroying each other. But the reason that they're doing it is because they're they're uh, planning to take us away, right? Yeah, but I'm thinking like when yeah, and there, there's no lasers and stuff. But, uh, right. When Gleason says to uh, Niven and Purnell, uh, "You should do an alien uh, aliens invade the Earth story." Uh, and I guess the way he would describe it is like War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. Nobody had said, you know, let's make, let, let me rewrite War of the Worlds. Like, I don't think there, there's lots of sort of dealing with aliens. And, you know, I, the Puppet Masters is not exactly, it's it's more like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? It's mm-hmm. It's yeah. not that kind of invasion. So it's... It isn't my, I guess my thesis is something like this: is like if you do something and you basically write the book on it, it doesn't need to be rewritten again later. In I think, given that uh, Wells wrote so many of the gave us so many of the ideas, I mean, the time machine has not really been rewritten as it is. We have lots of time machine stories. Or stories with time machines or time travel, but it's usually about the the going to one place or one time or some problem. Like there was the accidental time machine; the guy can only go backwards in time, right? Um, there's some sort of twist to it. Once you've got the initial concept and you nail it, you don't have to rewrite that story uh, in novel form. Mm-hmm. It's like a progression, is what I'm thinking. And that's sort of why I, I, I read Footfall and I say, yeah, it doesn't really do anything for me. Isn't that, like, if, if this was the first time that was done, don't you think I'd be like, oh, my God, what's amazing. Wouldn't we be like that? Hmm. Probably. It, probably. I mean, I mean, yeah, you're right. More of the Worlds does hit, and his allegory, it, it, it hit, it's, it's, it's deeper and richer than Footfall. No offense, Footfall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I know I, I I have a soft affection for the entertainment value of this book more than some of its merits. <laughs> I mean I mean it's just high concept, cool, neat, gee whiz, wow. Yeah. But wow, they dropped meteors on that tank column in Kansas. <laughs> wow, that's nice. Yeah. I, how can you like this better than Lucifer's Hammer? You um, that to me. I do like this better than Lucifer's Hammer. Lucifer's Hammer, the politics. And some of the stuff in there. Yeah, but is that entertainment value? Because I think Lucifer's Hammer is actually it's original in one sense, right? It's it's trying to say what are the effects of a giant uh, asteroid hitting the Earth. It is more original that way. Yes, I mean, I mean, it, do, it does it does portray. But then again, it's for the right, for the most part very even more limited than football. I mean, we just really just see Southern California, except for one tiny little bit where we see. An island in Greece get flooded, but other than that, it's really focused on just one area and one set of relatively undiverse characters and some really questionable politics. And oh, that, that, there's no question. There's there's problems with it, but I I I have this feeling that this book is sort of a good way of understanding. Like I, I talk about a story. I talked to Scott many years about it and argued with him about it. Uh, there's a story by Tom Godwin, uh, the only one anybody knows by him, The Cold Equations, right? Yep. Not a good story. If you read it, it's technically badly written. 
It's got a kludgy sort of get the job done uh, till the end, right? And it's it's the idea that's so good. It's like, hey, I'm going to show you some idea that I have. It's it's more of a it's a, it's a Niven style idea, right? Where mm. you've got some physics idea that you want to ex- show in fiction, and you get it out there. And and once you do that, people can you know set up other ones. I guess, and uh, there's a lot of stories that have been, you know, there's the ethical equations and the James Patrick Kelly story. There's uh, like dozens of stories that are based on the this uh, original concept, but they rework it in some way. They apply it to uh, teleportation, or they apply it to some other thing where you just have to accept some harsh truth about the world. But the reason it's good is not because it's well written and entertaining. It's actually not well written. And it's not entertaining. It's just because it's such a good idea, it's memorable. And you sort of read that, and then you can move on to the next um, concept. It's like you can read science fiction sort of as a as a, a, a way to play with ideas, uh, sort of in an educational way, or you can read science fiction as just uh, rocket ships and laser guns with with uh, the entertainment. I, I prefer it to be well-written, but I think, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is sort of a necessary idea that we need to have written so that we can learn about that concept. And the fact that that's the first one to do it is just uh, uh, sort of just the way it happened to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead. No, that's it. Uh, I, I, I counted the uh, characters. It was 124 characters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, if you want a quick uh, idea book, this is not one for you. I, I kind of re- related to The Stand, like Stephen King's The Stand, where there's a disaster on Earth and there's a whole bunch of characters. And But I don't, I don't think uh, these two guys are any Stephen King. <laughs> well, he's, he's a stylist, really. I mean, he's, he's, he's got a sort of style. Don't, yeah, don't. well, Stephen King is you know, really character-driven, you know, so even though there's lots of characters in The Stand, you know, that comment I made earlier where uh, most of the characters in Footfall, it really didn't matter what their names were um, in The Stand, that's not the case. You know, there people have arcs and things, you know, that matter to the story. Um, you know, like I said here in, in Footfall, you know, you may have a family that's witnessing something happening in the sky it really doesn't matter what their names are you know they're characters in the story but it didn't affect my i didn't have any problem following it not remembering that you know we saw this person earlier or whatever Mm. other than the main people you know like dawson you know that there, that there, there's some, you know, West <laughs> no. Dawson, Congressman West Dawson. I remember, right. you know, okay. he, he's, you know, those main characters, that's out. different, you know, and the president. I, I thought the biker guy, the, the pot belly was our main character. from <laughs> Harry? Yeah, that, that guy. Yeah, I like him. Uh, Harry he, Red, yeah. He seems like he's based on a real person. He is. Yeah. Did you know that? I uh, I assumed, I assumed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, in one of, one of Niven's books... I, one of his anthologies, like End Space or something, he was talking about tuckerizing people left and right in this book. And apparently, Harry is a person that they tuckerized and they even offer him, Do you want to live or die? He says, Give me a heroic death. 
Mm. So they killed them, <laughs> saving the that. ship. Yeah. What is Tucker Eyes? Tuckerize is when you take a real person and stick them into a novel. Okay. Just just like Niven's Tuckerize in this novel, Pornell's Tuckerize in this right. novel, is a bunch of other science fiction authors Tuckerize mm. this novel. Highlines. Bob yeah. Anson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And not, Virginia not Anson. Why is she? Why is she in there? I don't understand. That that's got to be charity, right? Well, what did Virginia Heinlein contribute to science fiction? Why is she in these meetings? She helped edit some of uh, Bob's stuff. All right. All right. That seems like, you know... The, it, it, okay, I'm, I'm going out there. Right I now. think they're still alive at this point when the novel's being written, right? Yeah. Both so they, so they, so they, in fact, they, because it's set in the future, it's extended that they're li- or at least the Heinlein lives a lot longer than he does in uh, real life. life, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think that was just a. Isn't that cute? Right. It's cute that we put these two characters, two people we know, in the book because she, there's no reason for her to be in these meetings. As far as I'm aware, Heinlein didn't get all his ideas from his wife or anything. It's not like. Lee Brackett and uh, oh wait Edmund Hamilton, yeah Edmund Ham- Hamilton, yeah, yeah, or you know, Henry, uh, yeah. Um, you know Tam Tam sent that thing. Uh, what was that on his Twitter that talked about those acknowledgments? And it says to Robert Gleason, mm-hmm. and I thought that that name looked familiar. You know, we were wondering who he was, but um, we're assuming that he edited some of this stuff. But where I heard of him before and I'm assuming this is the same person, mm-hmm. is there was a book called The Wrath of God, um, or just Wrath of God without the the, and here's mm-hmm. the description. In a post-apocalyptic future, the United States is being invaded by Mongol by a Mongol horde led by the reincarnation of the Mongol Khan Tamerlane. Mm-hmm. The Los Angeles scientist finds a hole in time and summons Stonewall Jackson to defend the country. I read that book and it was written in a, like 1994. It says, hmm. um, so that's where I've heard of him before. And it it is a very similar it? book. Yeah, Robert Gleason wrote it, huh. and um, it kind of is a the same type of a book as Lucifer's Hammer or this one, in which you know the the world is you know we're a world at war and the United States is being invaded, and you know and the, they started. He went over, you know, through Africa and down, and it was interesting to read because, you know, I live in the Rocky Mountain, Utah, Idaho area, and they came right through here, the Mongols. Uh, I think most of this book was uh, set in Spokane or something. That's uh, Bellingham, right? Mm-hmm. Bellingham. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's just across the border from me, so yeah. I was kind of worried that we were going to get uh, rocks dropped on us. And have well, yeah, but when that ship goes, when the Orion ship goes firing off yeah the whole area gets devastated yeah well that that's actually a little bit of uh allegory because um han hanford is like a there's a there's a giant nuclear waste dump in washington state right near oh really (laughs) yeah i didn't know that yeah it's like a it's where they keep all the uh spent fuel rods and such um (laughs) it's uh, it wouldn't be good to have a sort of a toxic spill there or rocks being thrown at the ground because it, <laughs> there's a lot of radioactive materials sort of piling up. They, they built that Yucca, Yucca Mountain mm-hmm. 
Um, I don't think they're still using it. I, I don't. No, they no. Right? There's still there's still lawsuits and stuff. Oh my god! Up. It's like let's just keep it all in the same place. I think well, it's, it's ultimately it's worse. It's all around the country. Yeah, but put it in. You know, you put it in the in, deep enough in the ground below the water table, uh, or something. You gotta can't just keep it all up above the ground. I, I like nuclear power. I think it's a good idea as long as, you know, you, you, you do have somebody manning it. But you, you can't keep all the waste uh, above the water table. It's no good. Mm-hmm. Bad. <laughs> Not in my backyard, unfortunately. It's very powerful, especially when it comes to nuclear waste. Yeah. Alas. So uh, the the funny thing is also the money being spent, right? Um, notice how much uh, they talk about how expensive things are going to be. They don't, right? Yeah. Well, uh, the thing is, is even back then, that was what uh, it is. Like they say, strategic defense initiative is going to cost this amount of money. This is the 1980s under Reagan. We're going to spend a certain amount of money. Even during war, I'm sorry to tell you, people have to be paid. <laughs> You know, having all those food shipments going to uh, Bellingham, it's Bellingham, right? Not Spokane. Yep. Yeah, Bellingham. Um, those people have to be paid because you've got to get the, like, it's just not mentioned at all, right? We'll, we'll just do this project, right? It's like uh, when Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell go to that meeting, um, they say, hey, spitball us some ideas for, for how to save uh, America from nuclear war. And they come up with rods from God, right? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. The uh, the Thor project, yeah, from the sky. Well, they're not looking at it for a cost benefit analysis on of, of the dollars spent versus the protection, right? They're just looking at it as the ideas thing. And even the president, who who should know about this, he doesn't say, you know, is that or is that feasible? Can we do that? Is it? And you know, the scientists always say, oh, sure, we can do that. And the science fiction guys in their in their meetings and yeah they're not they're not worried about you know when when uh, rocks fall from the sky and destroy you know India it's not a big deal because they're just interested they've got a more global view <laughs> you still have to pay the bills though right you have to you have to get that money from somewhere they need to have Paul Krugman in there advising too mm-hmm. Paul Krugman science fiction fan yeah. Yes, I would like to see his uh, take on the alien invasion. I think it would be different. <laughs> so, it would be more uh, uh, Asimovian, maybe. Asimovian. Maybe. Yeah, because he, he he's a he's a fan of the Foundation series, right? So. Yeah, that's how he got into economics, as I recall. He wanted to study psychohistory. Psychohistory didn't exist, so he became an economist. Mm. It's it's a little bit like psychohistory, except the problem. Is economics is, is, yeah, it's it's sort of explaining what happened rather than uh, predicting the future. It's it's not that great at predicting the future. It's much better at because the problem is, is we don't have all the facts. We always think, oh, we know what's going on, but you wait ten years, you know what what was going on a lot better than you, did, right? You have to wait for history to let all the the facts fall out before you you know what's going on and and. Economics requires that you have access to the the right data in order to explain things. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've gotten into arguments with libertarians over this. Oh. Well, that's what libertarians are for, getting into, <laughs> getting into arguments. Yeah, I won't name names. <laughs> and Paul. <laughs> no, no, they're, they're in, in the science fiction community, no less. Is his so. name Fred? No, not no, not not Fred. Fred's a good guy, and he's not a libertarian. Fred, Fred Keish was just tweeting us before. Was he? Yeah, I, that, I know. I knew you were talking about. That's scary. All right. Well, uh, we wrapping this up. Okay. Any final thoughts? So. Well, I mean, if you want ideas, that one chapter was pretty cool, uh, where they talk about the Thor project and the Orion project, and uh, launching ships with lasers or something. I like that one chapter. Mm-hmm. But uh, if you want ideas, it probably isn't the book for you. Yeah, you were saying chapter 20 uh, has all the ideas. Right. I think it's called Schemes. Okay. And that's where they first decide to make that ship that runs on uh, atomic bombs mm. for propulsion. Yeah. <laughs> and the uh, crowbars from space that are Rocks, remote controlled. They call them. Yep. The Thor Project. Yep. Yep. I think, you know, I think I first heard about this book on Prisoners of Gravity, that uh, old TV show. Do you remember seeing that segment, Scott? Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, I love that show. (laughs) Even in Purnell were were talking Mm -hmm. about it. And they have, I don't know if they still do, but they have this whole smug thing going on that was really annoying. (laughs) It was like, like, yeah, we came up with this great idea. Now the government's going to do it. It's like... What? You can't do this. You can't do smug just because the government's going to do something you came up with. What if it's a bad idea? <laughs> but, and they, uh, and there was, I, I think there was another one. They, they were on that show and they were talking about a, yeah, they were talking about a book they were working on that was about uh, why environmentalists are stupid. <laughs> oh, oh, um, what's the same? Fallen Angels? Could be, yeah. Uh, is that I made, Niven that, project? That's that's Pornell, Niven, and um, Barnes, I think. Yeah, it's like radical environmentalists uh, have their have their stuff turned over or something. Well, radical environmentalists start a new ice age. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're headed for that. <laughs> well, basically, basically, ra- radical reductions in carbon dioxide emissions cause the earth to cool and start a rapid ice age. That's basically the plot of that book. Yeah. So I would say, I would say that, you know, Niven and Purnell, uh, they don't have, uh, exclusively access to the truth. I wouldn't want either of them elected Pope. <laughs> Nor <laughs> Popage. Purnell's a Catholic, so I guess he'd be technically eligible, I think. Oh. <laughs> Don't tell. Mm. Don't, don't give me any ideas. <laughs> yep, there's a subject for their next book. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. <laughs>